And he says, well, this mountain or that mountain, God doesn't really care. There's not a magical mountain to worship on. A time has come when God is looking for worshipers in spirit and truth. What that came to mean for me was people who will show up honestly. God is trying to make real contact with you. I'm Nathan Foster, and welcome to Life with God, a Renovare podcast, a place for unhurried and thoughtful conversations about interactive life with God. Today, we conclude our series based around practices that help in times of challenge, gifts that sustain. And today, we're exploring the gift of truth with musician and writer Matthew Clark. In a wonderfully unexpected way, Matthew wraps things up for us, covering a number of themes from our series, creating, nature, beauty, and art. What struck me about this conversation isn't just what he shares, but the way in which he speaks, writes, and sings. How creative work helps him to be honest with himself and his refusal to settle until he utters something true. I spoke with Matthew in person from the Colorado leg of his fall tour. Matthew, I'm curious, what gets you up in the morning? Well, I don't always get up in the morning. <laughs> That's a good question. I there I do feel like there's some something about the the world God has made that makes me, that pulls me forward. There are days when I get really stuck and I feel like I'm so afraid of everything or I'm so tired that everything makes me tired. <laughs> um, and then there are times even in the midst of that when I feel like, but there, I know that there's some... I know that, that that's not the truest thing. I want to try to remain available and and turn myself towards that goodness and that beauty, you know, and that life that I know is there, even if I can't feel it or see it or get to it or I don't know how to get to it. When you think back through your life, what is the role that relationships friendships have played in making you who you are today? I spent a lot of time feeling very lonely mm -hmm. and feeling like the kind of connection that I hoped for or kind of ached for wasn't available or I didn't know how to get it. And I didn't feel like some of that stuff was even possible for me until a good bit later, until later in college, um, when I met some friends, and, and and several of those friends are are still friends today. I still keep regular touch with. But over time, well, I worked at this summer camp in Memphis called SOS, Service Over Self, and it's an urban home repair camp. Okay. And... I got involved in it kind of on accident because this other guy I met in a campus ministry was a part of it. So I went and worked on staff at this camp. And it was the first time in my life I saw anything like 
real community. This was kind of early 2000s. And there were around 50 staff. And we were there for 10 weeks. It was exhausting. We were working really hard. I was roofing in Memphis all summer, you know. And so we were just worn out. But the kind of connection and unity in that experience was something I didn't even know. I didn't even know that existed. Mm-hmm. I had never seen it before. And it it just lit up something in me that was like, oh my goodness, there is this, there is a kind of connection and love you can have with friends that I think in some ways I'd never, I'd longed for that, but I had never actually seen it. So it, it, it had never been something I, I could believe in before that. And since then, I've just always, that, that opened up something in me to look for that and to seek that out and to, and still I long for that. I mean, in some ways, what I do now with music, I've said before that it's just traveling and making music is this really elaborate excuse to just hang out with people. (laughs) (laughs) Do you find, have you found that sense of community since then, or do you feel like you're always kind of chasing or looking for that? Not in that same way. Um, and I, I think probably in that exact same way is, is maybe not sustainable. It's so summer camp is such an intense right, experience. Right. You know? And then you get older and you find sort of different iterations of that. But I have not found that in one place. I've found that in order to have anything like that has required me to live a sort of weird life that involves a lot of movement. That involves traveling a lot. But there's always been a sense for me of, uh, and even now I feel like, I I don't really know exactly where home is. I don't feel like the place where I actually live back home, even that place doesn't give me the strongest sense of home. Hmm. And so there's kind of a phrase that I use within my own, like a term within my own mind. It's like a home in the world. I feel like there are different people and different homes and different friends all around the country who are kind of, each one of those is a home in the world. Mm -hmm. And when I'm there, I feel at home. So I I keep finding that home is not something I, for me, it's just with different people in different places. It could be all over the place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's really aggravating. And I don't know exactly what to do with that. But, but also I've found that that's, that really is a way that the Lord has made a kind of fabric um, out of all these strands from different places. And I really do love people here and I love people in this other place and feel loved by them. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I find myself having to like keep driving around <laughs> to like feel like I'm at home. <laughs> What role has writing music played in your own um, um, healing, um, life-giving, processing? What has that been like for you? Well, it is very much a uh, a way of metabolizing life, a way of processing. There's a Flannery O'Connor quote that I, when I read it, I, I it. I just, it made so much sense to me. She said, I don't really know, I'm paraphrasing, but I don't really know what I think or feel until I write it, Mm -hmm. until I read what I've written. Mm -hmm. And 
I was like, oh, that's so true for me. I don't go to write a song because I have something nailed down. Okay. I go to write a song because I don't know what's going on. Or I'm reaching for something and trying to understand it or trying to get something out. And the process of making changes me and helps me kind of locate myself in this bigger context, you know. Mm-hmm. And I've, I feel often like if I go through something that's really like a, like a time of grief or loss, I want to make something out of that to be able to um, to be able to locate myself in that disorienting experience. Like you find your own story. Uh-huh. Find your voice. Uh-huh. One of the first lyrics on an album I made in 2015 or so, it's called Come Tell Your Story, which was, this was, I had uh, been through a divorce and I was very disoriented and in a time of like really intense grief. And the first lyric on on that album is knock on my door, knock on my door and come tell me the story again. You know, cause I don't know where the heck I am. I don't know what is going on. I don't know how any, my life doesn't make any sense anymore. Everything I thought I understood has been blown to pieces. Like I need somebody to, and and making that album was even part of like trying to pick up all these jagged pieces and make some kind of shape out of them, you know, out of your story. Yeah. 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 Yeah, And out of that grief and that loss. And it's a gift, isn't it? Having something to help locate yourself or help Uh your, yeah. So writing the same way. Yeah. Writing is another way. And honestly, writing for me starts with, um, I'm getting over feeling stupid about saying this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good disclaimer. <laughs> Writing starts with talking to myself. Uh-huh. I, I, I drive a lot or I, if I have time alone, I go for a walk and I just talk things out. And sometimes that's prayer and sometimes it's just me getting stuck in myself. But whatever it is, in either case, like I need to to feel the ideas in my body. I need to feel the ideas in my mouth and hear them. And then kind of from there, then I start trying to write out. But I do feel like that, even that bodily exercise of, in, of, of saying those things of what does it sound like if I say this out loud mm-hmm. and maybe it gets tossed. Maybe it, I can't make sense of it or I need to like try things out, okay. try to put them into words but I do find that writing helps me sort of cosmos chaos, you know. There's a vulnerability to approaching songs and writing in that way. Is that is that accurate? Yeah. yeah. Songs can do a lot of different things. But one of the things that I love about songs and what making songs can and writing things does that I love is um is it it allows you to look into things that you may not understand, you know, may not feel like you have control over them. Uh, and so that feels vulnerable. I'm going to write about this, but I don't really even know what this means or how this works, mm-hmm. but I'm just going to go into it anyway and try to stay present and responsive and try to tell the truth 
and trust that somehow if I just start walking in this direction, this this is going to go somewhere, and I don't know where it's going to go. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to trust that in some sense I'm 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 moving toward a face, like that this this does go somewhere, and there is someone inviting me forward, mm-hmm. and that if that's the case, then. I'm going to be met in this at some point. And I, and I am maybe already surrounded, even though I don't know it. I am maybe already held. And um, if if I'm held, whether I can feel it or not, then I can, I can take that chance. You know, I can be vulnerable. Like that's almost like a, just kind of picture going down a river or something that, mm-hmm. and a, yeah, you don't know where it's going, but you're, you're held. Uh-huh. And, uh, safe to discover uh-huh um it's interesting you said honest i have this kind of marker for writing and music well actually any creative endeavor did they tell the truth and i don't mean that by like do they not lie or mm-hmm. um or even is it you know vulnerable or exposing but um were they honest with themselves is there does it ring of something true Mm-hmm. Um, I don't quite know how to even put that into words. I can, it's like a feeling. Of, sure. Uh, and, and, and I notice it more on the opposite of like, I don't believe you. <laughs> you <laughs> hear someone singing a love song and I'm like, no, no, I don't believe you. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I don't know. How does that sit with you? This idea of telling the truth and writing and, and singing. Yeah. I think it's, it's hard to do. It's hard. Um, I mean, I've written songs and I've gotten a draft and then I've been like, it's not there. I'm not, I'm not showing up. I don't feel like I'm being honest with this song. I don't feel like I'm being honest with myself. And so I need to, I need to keep pushing, Mm -hmm. pushing into this, you know, write another song, write another draft of it until you feel like, oh, the, the real thing has come to the surface, but you got to keep like peeling away drafts, you know, or, but it makes me think of one of the stories that became this kind of habitat that I uh, sat in for years was the woman at the well. And so the idea of spirit and truth, God is looking for those who will worship in spirit and truth. And I was like, okay, he can't, I don't think Jesus would say that to this lady if it was some kind of weird phrase that she couldn't possibly understand. Like it must, that must have meant something to her. And she's just asked this question, which she's really trying to get out of the conversation because it's uncomfortable. And she's sabotaging the conversation. She's trying to set herself up because she knows what the answer is. And she's asking a question to get him to say the thing that will end the conversation so she can go home. And he doesn't answer like she thinks. And he says, well, this mountain or that mountain, God doesn't really care. There's not a magical mountain to worship on. A time has come when God is looking for worshipers in spirit and truth. What that came to mean for me was people who will show up honestly. God is trying to make real contact with you. And until you can become vulnerable enough to bring who you really are, what you're really feeling, what your situation actually is to the surface. As long as it's not on the surface, nobody can touch it, Mm -hmm. which is nice. 
because it feels safe, nobody's going to be able to touch the thing that's so tender and bruised in me. But God is looking for people who are willing to let their who they really are and the pain they actually feel like come to the surface so that real contact can happen. And if real contact can happen, then, and I think Jesus is doing that. Jesus is really showing up in spirit and in truth. And he's saying, can you meet me here? Can we make real contact? Or are we just going to, or are our facades just going to bump up against each other and bounce off of each other like bumper cars, you know? Because that's, we're not going to get anywhere with that. So I think when it comes to songwriting, I want to fight for that. I want to push towards um, songs that are not just entertaining or even interesting, but I'm I'm trying to find that real contact because that's also what I long for myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want to. I'm tired of being alone, and I'm tired of bumping up against facades. Like I want to some real contact. You know, it's a certain level of strength or courage it takes to approach it in that way. Does that does that fit? Yeah, I think. Um, but it doesn't feel like that. It may be, it is that, but it doesn't feel like that. And, uh, you know, uh, Chesterton helped me make sense of that because he said, you know, the whole point of the virtues and the whole point of courage is that it's the thing you do when you don't feel courageous, <laughs> you <laughs> right, know? Right. And so, I, did, I don't think it's reasonable to expect to feel courageous. Mm. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you, yeah. but it kind of is that, but... I think also, um, I think there's a, a point at which you you get tired of the alternative. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, okay, I know this is going to hurt, but I would rather, you know. Yeah. I think it's something I'm, I mean, maybe it's a reaction to our culture, but I just really want to flip the script on what is strength and what is courage in terms of, um, you know, hiding or uh, keeping things uh, buried, but in living kind of out loud, skin off kind of, um, I think takes quite a bit of courage. And, and I'm with you. Uh, I think of courage as um, being afraid and doing it anyways. Just to make the heart of God Plain in every beauty that you see Every star in the sky Every kind look in someone's eyes He is calling out to you Through the good things He's speaking Beauty What is the role of beauty play in life and your creative endeavors beauty does a lot of different things i think a lot of times we confuse sentiment for beauty okay 
um, or sentimentalism for beauty. But beauty, I th- one of the things I I think beauty does for me is it it's reminding me that this is at the core of reality. This is this is true. That um, that the core of reality is beautiful. That the, the truest thing is is good. Actually, hmm. um, there's a lot of ugliness, but that's actually not. That's an aberration. That that if there's a perversion, then there had to be a version mm-hmm. to be perverted. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it feels like the perversion is the is the uh, fundamental thing. Like it's the real thing. Right. And beauty reminds me, like, oh no, that's not actually true. The perversion is is the aberration. It's abnormal. Mm-hmm. Normal is actually beautiful. Right. It's a, the twisting. There's a lie. Yeah. There's a, yeah. yeah. There's a lie somewhere, but beauty is actually true. It's actually saying something true about the core of reality. And I want to notice that. And I want to be looking for that. Because the easiest thing is to just slide, you know, kind of go this mudslide down into <laughs> um, how terrible everything is. And I think, I think there's a call to, like, not dismiss that, to say, yeah. We need to grieve and lament, and that's really true. But that's not the only thing. Mm-hmm. And then I think beauty is also providing this contrast. So beauty is something that I think sentimentalism doesn't do is challenge us. Okay. But beauty does. Real beauty does challenge us. Define sentimental. Sentimental is sort of unearned emotion. So a sentiment is not a bad, like a feeling about something like, I'm glad to be here. I'm enjoying this conversation is a feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, but to um, feelings can be manipulated. And I think sentimentalism is, in a sense, welcoming that manipulation. It's saying, yes, just make me feel a way that I I shouldn't actually feel. There's no real actual reason to feel that way. Hmm. But, you, but I'm sort of welcoming, yeah, just manipulate me. Hmm. <laughs> And how does that take form? Like what's the... I noticed it um, the first time I ever really noticed it was in a movie, and I might I might get in trouble for this, but a movie called The Holiday. Okay. This was years ago, and I and I noticed that Jude Law's character, we're being made to feel good about him. He's a terrible father. Mm-hmm. He's a terrible man in the story, but the way the story is told and depicted. Our sentiments, our feelings are being conditioned to feel good about him okay. in an unrealistic way, right? He's a womanizer and he's an alcoholic. And like within the first five minutes, he knocks on a door and takes advantage of a woman. And mm-hmm. But then you're shown this scene where he's playing with his kids and he's the best dad in the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, so you feel good about something you ought not feel good about. Okay. Okay. And it's unnatural. It's um because in a movie you can do anything. Mm-hmm. You can make anything happen. Mm-hmm. That was the first time I ever noticed that I was being manipulated by a movie. So I feel like the idea of sentimentalism is when we are sort of uh in a dishonest way we're creating feelings for someone else or in someone else mm-hmm. through the things we are making. 
Oh, so like in your creative endeavors, then is this what goes back to being honest then? Right. That, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, am I just messing with someone's emotions or am I offering them real access to something that's really there? And maybe their response to that will be that emotion. Mm-hmm. Or am I doing something in a way that I'm, I know how to kind of push this button and flip this lever and push this fader up, you know, so that, <laughs> so that they feel this or that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, is that what I'm doing? Or am I making something that genuinely does produce this response? Because that is characteristic of that thing. That's beautiful. Does that make sense? Yeah, because it's beauty. It's but true. beauty it's is true. true. Beauty is actually real. Real beauty is not merely sentimental. It's not manipulative. It is actually calling forth a response of, yes. you know, whatever that yes. response is in you, because it is telling you something true about reality. There's a Hansers von Balthasar says, beauty, goodness, and truth are, are are in a unity. Right. And if you if you have something that is good but it's not beautiful or true, it's not really good. Yeah. If you have something that's beautiful but it's not good or true, then it's not actually beautiful. <laughs> you can't separate them. They they all uh, we analyze and that's the what the word analyze means. It means to separate things into parts. Mm so that you can talk about them. But in real life, they're not actually separated. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They actually are uh, part of a whole. So, so beauty challenges us because it says, oh, don't stop there. Don't stop at that surface thing. Mm-hmm. Keep, keep coming. Mm-hmm. Like there's something better than that. Um, or it can hold a picture up against a picture, you know, and say, no, keep pushing because you're not there yet, which is annoying to feel. But beauty is saying, in some sense, beauty is saying, I believe in you more than you do. I think you can do better than that. Hmm. Uh, Not in a discouraging way, but to say like, oh, there's reach, reach a little further. Dig deeper. Yeah. Uh Mm -hmm. How do you notice beauty? Uh well, that, that's one of the things I think about beauty is that it it's very powerful, but it's also not um, pushy. Mm. It's kind of shy. <laughs> Waiting to be found, discovered. Beauty is not coercive uh, or forceful. Beauty's, beauty has this kind of personality to it that's sort of like, that's kind of shy. I, li- I like to think of it as a shy beauty that is sort of uh, wants to be looked for, wants to be sought out, wants to be pursued, is not going to, you know, not flashy, not going to play games to get your attention, is going to wait and see if you will conform your attention to what it has to offer. There's a lady, Esther Lightcap Meek, she's an epistemologist, and she talks a lot about this. She talks about how re- this is this is kind of the nature of the world God has made. Maybe even maybe even God is a little bit shy. You know, a lot of times we think he's avoiding us or he's hiding from us. It's like he might be, maybe he's just not pushy or flashy. Mm-hmm. 
maybe he has a, a kind of shyness to him where he says like, oh, I want you to know me, mm-hmm. but I also want you to want, I want you to want me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I want you to come uh-huh. close to me uh-huh. and I'll come close to you. Draw near to me. I'll draw near to you. And she says, but kind of the nature of reality is that when you love it and when you take good care of it and when you attend to it, it says it relaxes mm, mm. and it says, Oh, can I show you something? Come, come look. <laughs> uh-huh. Yes. Oh. But if you but if you demand uh-huh. and you yell at it, yeah. Ooh, yeah. It, it it uh seizes up, it gets tense. Yeah. And it yeah. backs off and you and you kinda ruin it. <laughs> but love is like that, you know, like in any relationship, if you say, Be my friend mm-hmm. right now, mm-hmm. prove it, prove that you're my friend. You're like, ah, I think I want to get out of here. It reminds me a little of the, if you have ears to hear or yeah. seek and you'll find. or the. Yeah. Uh-huh. What are some beautiful things that you notice? And we're talking abstractly, but some of your favorite beautiful things. Well, I grew up in Mississippi. There are a lot of trees and woods. And so, like, there is something about being in the woods that works for me. <laughs> Water. I love being near water. I love the sound of water. I love watching water. Uh, these are just natural things. Um, I was sitting around. A, I was sitting on a friend's back porch a couple of nights ago, and I was sitting in between two people that were talking. So that meant that they were they were holding up the conversation, and I could just kind of sit back and I didn't have to say anything. Mm-hmm. And and I felt like okay, this is a good chance for me to just look at this person that I know and just watch them. And I felt, I felt like this sense of like love, just like, I love this person. I love like looking at their face, seeing this person talk, like hearing, and he wasn't like even talking about anything really deep. They were just having a normal conversation. (laughs) But I think faces, like looking at faces, listening to voices, um, yeah. I love food. Food is really interesting to me. God's love made edible. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, so, there are a lot, a lot of things like that, yeah. I think of like relationships or um, people's longings, mm-hmm. courage. Somebody recently made a distinction between uh, gratitude and appreciation. Okay. And they say gratitude is sort of a, if you want to say like a left-brained kind of acknowledgement. And they said appreciation is is something you sort of do with your body. Huh. That you, you stop for a moment and you're holding this coffee and you look at the coffee and you say, what color is it? Oh, that's like there's something please, pleasing <laughs> about the color. Uh, I, I'm smelling it. What does it smell like? I can, uh, what does it taste like? How, how, I can feel the warmth coming through the cup into my hands. That feels good. And to sort of actually physically, bodily, uh, give your presence to the goodness of something that is there. You know, or I think of woodworking, like, feeling a piece of wood would get smoother and smoother as you sand it or seeing it transform when you apply um, a finish to it. Mm-hmm. 
and just enjoying that, like taking joy in and saying like, this is good. Like, what a good thing. Oh, I like this. To appreciate, you almost have to have a sense of wonder. And, uh-huh. and, and what I'm hearing you say is that we, we, we inhabit or implicate ourselves, lean in, befriend. These are the, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of, I really like wildflowers. It's kind of my thing. And, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, right. It's, yeah. I can see it and oh, I'm grateful that's there. But to to slow down and take time with it and, right, inhabit, appreciate. Yeah. And to fight the feeling of wastefulness or, or foolishness that's going to come with that. Yes. You're going to feel like an idiot probably doing yeah. that. Uh, yeah. Or you're going to feel like you're not getting anything done or... Uh, And I I feel like a lot of, I I don't want to just isolate this to creative work. I think this is the call of life of God, you know, to, to be a, to be in God's life with God Mm -hmm. for anybody, for everybody. But I find that the creative process for me is a way, is a, is a practice that helps me move in this direction Um, because so much of the creative process feels stupid. (laughs) <laughs> you feel also. well it's like okay i'm gonna just sit here and play some guitar chords and try to put some words together for like an entire day or a week yeah what am i getting i'm not getting anything done. it doesn't feel like you're getting anything done right, right. it doesn't like you're certainly not making much money <laughs> you know and so it feels uh it feels really foolish mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and you know but i'm really comforted by Jesus's work. He's like, he, his work was also very foolish in the, you know, he's, and you talked about turning these things upside down. There's so many ways that we assign validity Mm -hmm. or value that I think are really wrong. Wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And they're inhumane really. Mm. And they're certainly putting a barrier between us and the ability to participate in God's life or to access beauty. Inhumane. Uh-huh. Can you unpack that a little? Well, in one sense, they do not nurture humanness. There you go. Uh, and the, you know, there's that famous St. Irenaeus quote about the glory of God as man fully alive. And I think he's talking specifically about Jesus in the context, but in Jesus, all of us as well. And really, the most important thing is to become a human, become an actual human. (laughs) (laughs) And we're doing all this stuff that that really makes that harder to Mm -hmm. get to. Mm -hmm. Eugene Peterson was a big help talking about this. I, I remember listening to an interview with him, and he said he was trying to kind of weed out inhumane language Mm -hmm. from his vocabulary because he said, and I agree with this from Tolkien and Lewis and Charles Williams and the Inklings. A lot of these guys were talking about Owen Barfield talks a lot about how consciousness is connected to language. So the words that you use Mm -hmm. that, that become normal to use very much affect the way you see, what you see, and how you see it, and how you feel about the yeah, world. It shapes our reality. It does. Mm-hmm. So, Eugene Peterson was saying he was trying to weed out 
machine language that had become normal in talking about people. So one example, he said, I don't want to use the word dysfunctional about people because he said people are not dysfunctional. Machines either function Hmm. or they don't function. He said, but more humane language. In other words, if I use this language, it will help me be more human and see the people in front of me in a more humane way that will help them become more human. If I think of um, what actually is human language, humans aren't dysfunctional. They are hurting or they're sad or they're grieving Hmm. or they're joyful or they're tired or they're... Patterns of life that don't serve them well or work well. Yeah. yeah. But um, he said, if I use machine language, it, 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 puts it ha, it forms in me a way of seeing other people that is not humane yeah that's good it's, it's back to the woman woman at the well mm-hmm. right like mm-hmm. treated her as a human <laughs> so he was more humane to her than she was to herself yeah there you go there you go that's i think that's a, a marker of um I mean, i'm always i'm always uncomfortable when we talk about spiritual growth and ways to measure it and I think it can be quite inhumane, actually. Mm. Um, but that does seem to be a marker of when people are able to see and treat themselves and one another in a humane way. Mm-hmm. The way God sees us, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, something I've been learning the last six or eight years, and it really does center around the woman at the well. I'm that story became so uh, significant for me, has become so significant for me the last years. That's a lot. what a lot of my writing and songwriting has been kind of centered around. But, um, but becoming human is not something I can do by myself. It's something that because I'm made in the image of a trinity, I am uh, – individualism is actually not real – I need to look into the face of another person and see myself being seen with love. And when I see you seeing me, that tells me something about myself. Even from the physiological standpoint, like the way that we're made is with eyes that that face outward. I don't have segmented eyes on stalks that can look back at myself and see me. I have to I can only look out away from myself. Which means I'm not built to be able to perceive hmm. rightly myself. I'm, I can only really know myself in relationship. I can only really be a person with other people. And so, I am dependent on the faces and the voices and the responses of the people that I'm trying to make contact with, real contact with. The way they respond to me is how I understand myself. Mm-hmm. And that goes against a lot of things that you would, you know, you want to be a self-made man. Mm-hmm. You want to be. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but to realize how beautifully dependent and interdependent we really are, that's also a vulnerable thing because I have to make myself visible to you. Mm-hmm. And then maybe you will frown at me or maybe you will smile. And that's dangerous. Right. And that's what the woman at the well is also experiencing because she has to go to the well and face 
God. Being seen. And my expectation, because I know all the garbage that's in me and that I've done and has been done to me, I don't know how to expect anything other than disgust on the face of God. Hmm. And if the face of God is disgust towards me, then I die. Hmm. I can't survive. But if the face of God is a smile, ah, I know who I am. I know I'm going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And that is, I think, a big theme in Scripture. You know, this num- blessing in numbers, Lord, make the light of your face to shine. And a, a shining face is a smiling face, a face that is glad about you. And so the woman at the well goes and meets Jesus and gets this big surprise, like God is actually glad to be with her. And that's not what she expected. And so me coming out of this season of what felt like incredible failure, I didn't understand myself after a divorce, you know, and, and then finding that God was still glad to be with me. And he was Everything had changed for me, but not for him. Mm-hmm. He was steady and he was happy to be there. That changed the way I saw myself, seeing him see me. But that also happens with people. He does that. You know, we do that for each other as well. Right. Oh, look, we just came full circle. Ways that relationships help. Mm. And then in our creative endeavors, we hear our own story, beauty, mm-hmm. being seen, being human. I like it. I like it, Matthew. Thanks for this conversation. Yeah, thank you for the hospitality. And that was Matthew Clark. Matthew's released a number of albums, including two recent releases with corresponding books, both meditations on Jesus's encounter with the woman at the well in story and song. They're titled Only the Lover Sings and A Tale of Two Trees can find out more information about Matthew, his work, and touring schedule on his website at matthewclark.net. matthewclark.net. Oh, there you can also find out information on partnering with his ministry as a monthly patron. It does seem so important these days to support independent musicians and artists. Matthew also has a delightful podcast. It's titled 1000 Words, Stories Along the Way. I love my colleague Mel's description of it. He outslows Nathan. I'm Nathan Foster, and you've been listening to the Renovare Podcast. We're grateful for all of you who help make this work possible. You can support Renovare and this podcast with a tax-deductible gift at renovare.org slash donate. Renovare is a Christian ecumenical renewal effort, offering resources and experiences to help people become more like Jesus. You can find a collection of thoughtfully curated articles, podcasts, webinars, online classes, as well as information on events in our institute on our website, renovare.org. This podcast is produced by Brian Morricon, who also wrote the opening song titled Be Kind. Until next time, be well, friends. Be well.